Good evening. Thank you for that song. Somebody asked Bill Gaither, a famous lyricist and songwriter, um, did he have any opinions on what were, were the best lyrics ever written? And he actually said it was a line from that song, The Love of God. With the skies of parchment made in every stalk on earth a quill. You know, that, that verse there. And uh, so that is a beautiful, beautiful song. Thank you. Karen and I are glad to be with you. Um, it, it isn't often we've been able to travel to some of the camp meetings together because for many moons we had kids in tow. And now the, the youngest of the bachelor litter is um, doing counseling work in one of the Christian camps. And so we're just so thankful that we could join you here. This week we're going to be talking about uh, a Bible hero and a subject that I think is very relevant to the times in which we're living, and that would be the person, that enigmatic character of Elijah. If you look in your Bible, go to the last book in the Old Testament, that's the book of Malachi chapter 4, you find the last prophecy in the Bible, last prophecy in the Old Testament I should say. Start with verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse." Now, it's interesting that it would say, remember the law of Moses, and behold, I send you Elijah, and then you turn to the next book in the Bible, and you can read in Matthew, where Jesus is up on this mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear to him. So in one sense, it was literally fulfilled. But if you go to Matthew chapter 17, the disciples enter into a dialogue with Jesus about Elijah. Elijah's name is mentioned about a hundred times if my computer's right, it's exactly 100 times in the Bible. And so he's an important character to study. Matthew 17, verse 11. I'll start with verse 10. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now notice this very important, the wording. Now this statement is made several months after John the Baptist has been executed. And yet Jesus said, indeed Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. You notice it said in Malachi that he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. There's a restoration that happens and then he says in verse 12, But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but they did whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So at least one fulfillment of Elijah was John the Baptist. Who's the first one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah? Elisha. Well, Elijah, yeah. Smarty pants. 
But then it would be Elisha who asked for a double portion of his spirit. And then you have John the Baptist. And yet the Bible says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's clearly a reference to other scriptures and prophecies about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord's coming, which is future from the time when Christ said it. I believe we're living in the times where we need the ministry of Elijah. Some have wondered, is this the work that the 144,000 are going to do? And in the same way that God raised up John the Baptist to prepare the way for his first coming, that God will raise up an army of John the Baptists that will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the world for the second coming. And the way Elijah brought revival, this group will bring revival. And so some have wondered that. But before I go too deep, because I've got several days to unpack that, I want to go to the story of Elijah. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. And maybe just as a, a transition, I should give a little bit of background. Elijah comes on the scene at a time of great apostasy. In fact, if you read 1 Kings chapter 16, it tells us in verse 29, 1 Kings 16, 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Amri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He also took as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So the northern kingdom entered a time of great apostasy. Now, will you bear with me for just a minute as I give you a little history? Because this, uh, this comes in later in the story and it, it makes for an important background. <clears throat> the son of Solomon, his name was Rehoboam. When Solomon died, um, one of the leaders who had been in Solomon's court that Solomon had some trouble with was a man named Jeroboam. Now I know Rehoboam, Jeroboam sounds similar. Rehoboam's the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was one of the other tribes of Israel. And he gathered Israel and they met with Rehoboam when they were about to uh, coronate him. And they said, look, before we go through this coronation ceremony and recognize you as our king, we need to ask you, your father, we admit, you know, those were times of peace and prosperity, but he taxed us very heavily for all of his building projects. And he worked us very hard and we're looking for a break now. Are you going to be as hard as your father was? And Rehoboam said, give me a few days to answer. And he went and he talked to his young friends. And they said, uh, you show them who's boss. You tell them, my father chastised you with whips, but I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. And the old counselors who counseled Solomon, they said, oh, no, no, no. You answer these people gently. If you serve them and you humble yourself, they will serve you forever. Now, I would think if you're smart at all, if Solomon's the wisest man who ever lived, you'd listen to Solomon's counselors. I mean, how do you get to be a counselor for Solomon? 
What's the test on that? Rehoboam didn't listen. And when he gave them a harsh answer, the ten tribes said, well, David, see to your own house. Those who are from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of David, if you want to serve Rehoboam, help yourself. And they took and they made Jeroboam king, and ten of the tribes broke away, and that civil war was never really healed. So from then on, you hear about Israel in two different sets. You hear of Judah, the southern kingdom, really had three tribes, which is Benjamin, Levi, the Levites all stayed down there in the south, and Judah. Then you had what they called the ten tribes of the north, sometimes referred to as Ephraim, because Ephraim was the biggest of them, and uh, their capital was Samaria. Ahab ended up being a king in the northern kingdom. Now, what Jeroboam did when he took the northern kingdom north, he, he took uh, leadership of those kingdoms, he said to himself, you know, the uh, Jewish feasts are going to start coming around and the people are all trained and were commanded to go down to the temple that Solomon built, offer sacrifice on their holy days and, and, uh, and the priests are the ones who have been specifically chosen by God, the Levites and the sons of, Aaron's, uh, of Aaron to lead out there in the ministry and I'm going to lose control because their hearts are going to start going after where the temple is. So here's what I'll do. He uh, took counsel with some of his advisors and they said, look, you just need to, have, you need to have an alternate for people. So he put up a golden calf in Dan and he put one up in Bethel. Dan is the furthest north and one in Bethel. And the people got into idolatry. Now you would think that Israelites should know, don't make another golden calf. But they went right back in the old pattern and they got involved in idolatry. But at least they called the golden calf worshiping Jehovah. And he said, look, uh, I'm going to make priests of anybody. And so they started to ordain and commission priests of all the people. It didn't matter whether or not you were a Levite or a child of Aaron. And there was a big rift in the kingdom. You know, history has a way of repeating itself. You know, this sort of happened with uh, the church in the Dark Ages. Kind of got a a split between Protestants and Catholics, and one leaned more towards idolatry than the other. And history could repeat itself again. So Ahab, he comes into power. They're already worshiping golden calves, and he makes things even worse, and he marries a daughter of a king who is a king priest of the Zidonians, a Phoenician, and they're big into Baal worship, and she is so zealous about Baal worship that she starts pushing her husband to worship Baal. Now, that's not the first time that's happened. You know, Solomon had a pretty good record as a king. It was during the time of Solomon they had great peace. Matter of fact, all the promises that God made to Israel almost reached a fulfillment during the time of Solomon. They'd become a light on a hill. Nations were flowing to Israel to learn of the wisdom of Solomon, to learn about God. And it sort of reaches its zenith when the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon. She brings all this gold. She says, I want to hear about your God. You remember when the ambassadors came to Hezekiah, he said, let me show you all my stuff. But when they came to Solomon, he talked about God. And she asked him questions, and, and he was sharing the wisdom of God. And, and you look at the history from the time of David, 
Israel was getting closer and closer to God in the time of Solomon, while he was faithful for the first 20 years or so, closer and closer to God. And then you read there in, in 1 Kings, after he builds a temple and after the Queen of Sheba comes, it makes an interesting statement. It says, in one year, 666 talents of gold came to Solomon. That number, does that sound familiar? Right after that number is mentioned, the next chapter says, and Solomon loved many foreign women. And he started to marry other girls because they were pretty and not because they worshiped God. And his wives turned his heart away and began to say, oh, I miss my God from when I was in Moab and I miss my God from when I was in Egypt and I miss my God from when I was in Edom. And gradually he, you know, he just, well, you know, he had what? 700 wives and 300 concubines? Or is it 300 concubines? And, or does it matter at that point even? <laughs> one of our kids one time was explaining to his brother, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. <laughs> <laughs> they turned his heart away. What happened to Samson? An unholy alliance. Now, it's very important as a believer, you marry within the faith. I just counseled with somebody a little while ago, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm engaged to somebody, and, and they're not a believer. I said, why in the world are you doing that? I said, I want to know if you can counsel me. I said, my counsel is break it off. Oh, if it's gone too far, we've sent out, we've sent out invitations. I said, it's not too late. I said, break it off. So they're not a believer. Why would you do that? And their conscience was bothering them, and I think they wanted me to talk them out of it. I did my best. But uh, the Bible's pretty clear on that. It doesn't usually end very well. It didn't end well for Samson. And in the end, Solomon regretted it. Look what happened to Israel because they tried to commingle. They commingled Baal worship with the worship of God. So... Jezebel, in her zeal to establish Baal as the one and only, because Ahab said, look, we need to allow freedom. Let everybody kind of choose what they want to do. And he said, you know, we'll have a contemporary service for, for the Baal people, and we'll have a more conservative service for the Jehovah people. And he said, let's try and make everybody happy. How does that end? And um, she began to persecute the prophets of God and kill them and Obadiah, the king's servant, had to hide some in a cave. So it's in this picture we start chapter 17, and Elijah's introduced. It's a time of great apostasy. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, Gilead is on the eastern side of the Jordan, up in the hills that were given to Reuben, Manasseh, uh, in Gad, and um, there's a little town up there, Tishbai. He said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. Now, Ahab, like any king, he periodically sits in the gate and he would judge the people. The king was typically the supreme court 
uh, people would have different cases that they would uh, bring to the various judges around the land. Normally in the southern kingdom, it was the Levites. I don't know what they did in the north, but the hard cases were brought to the king. Remember, David was sitting to judge when, when uh, Nathan the prophet came and brought this case that he made up, and, and Solomon was judging when the women arguing about the baby was brought as a difficult case. And so Ahab is seeing different people, and, and um, without any introduction, Elijah just marches in. He stands before the king. Some people recognize him because he's wearing the garb of the sons of the prophets. And he makes this prophecy. He didn't go to the people. He went right to the source of the problem. The king was a leader and he was compromising. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand, there will not be dew or rain these years. Now, he didn't say a day. He didn't say there won't be any for a week. He said these years. They were getting ready to enter years of famine. He didn't say just no rain. He said no dew on the grass. It was going to be parched. Accepted my word. In other words, until I'm given other word, there'll be nothing. And without waiting for an explanation, he does an about face and he marches out. And the king and the guards are all taking it in and they're wondering, first of all, how did he get in without a pass? There was a pastor. He was called the Handshake Man. You ever heard this story? Pastor Richard Weaver. The Secret Service knew him pretty well. He had a way of just walking through security and shaking hands with presidents. And he was always dressed nice. He had a crew cut, clean cut, not friendly looking guy. And he would just walk. He sometimes would unhook the velvet ropes, keeping people out. He'd unhook them, walk through, hook them. He'd walk over, shake hands. He'd often hand them a letter, say, I got a message for you from God. He'd smile, shake hands, walk up the aisle, shake hands with the president's wife and everybody. And then he'd walk out and they go. Sometimes he'd even snap pictures. Then he'd leave. And the Secret Service frequently cornered him. But since, you know, the president's a public citizen, he didn't really break any specific law. He just shook hands and left. He did this with Clinton, Obama, George Bush, both Bushes, and they don't know how he managed to keep getting through security. He was interviewed, on, and whenever he would show up, they started watching him. And whenever he would show up at an event, the Secret Service would be very nervous. But somehow they called him the handshake man. Any of you heard that story before? Yeah, he just, he always seemed to get through. Elijah got through, and uh, Ahab doesn't know what to think of that. And then finally, Ahab says, look, go arrest that guy. Who does he think he is pronouncing a terrible curse like that on us? Well, they couldn't find him anywhere because God had told Elijah to get away. He said, turn eastward and hide by the brook, Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Now, Elijah said there's going to be a famine Elijah said it based on the word of God. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 28, take heed to yourself. Well, I'm going to actually start with Deuteronomy 11, verse 16. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart is deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens that there be no rain and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land that the Lord has given you. The good land will only stay the good land as long as you behave. God is saying, if you turn and worship other gods, I'll dry things up. 
Now look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 23. And your heavens that are over you will be bronze, and the earth that is under you will be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It shall come down until you are destroyed. Now why am I talking about this? Turn with me to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 8. There's a prophecy here. And it starts in verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they will wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they will run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. I will send a famine on the land. Did a famine come in the days of Elijah? Why did the famine come? Because of the disobedience of the people. And principally their disobedience was they became double-minded. Later we'll read where Elijah comes before the people and he says, how long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And I just wonder that if Elijah was here today, if you would ask the church, so make up your mind. Do you want to serve the Lord or are you going to serve the world? There's a lot of idolatry even in the church. When he says, I'll send a famine on the land for the word of God, is that a famine that's talking about just the, the general pagans of the world or is this a message that Amos is giving to the church? Amos is concerned with the church. The church is supposed to have the word of God, right? But what does the church have if it doesn't have the word of God? Someone please tell me. If the church doesn't have the word of God, what do they have? They got a form of godliness and no power. They got ritual, they got social interaction, they got institutions, they've got buildings. But if the church doesn't have the word of God, we don't have anything. The constitution, the foundation for everything that makes anything worth anything among Seventh-day Adventists is the Bible. But is it possible to have a famine for the word of God in families and churches where we've got thousands of Bibles. I don't know how many Bibles we have in our family. We've probably got 15 or 20 in our house. The average Christian's got five Bibles. How many of you have more than five Bibles? Do you know that owning a Bible is not a substitute for reading a Bible? You can have a famine for the Word of God well, you have plenty of Bibles. What happens during a famine? People get hungry. You know, it's possible to be starving to death while you have an artificial sensation of being full. I read about um, in China, between 1959 and 1961 was the worst famine in modern times. And it was brought on by some very bad government policies and um, discouraged production. Um, they were killing off all these sparrows. This seems crazy. They thought the sparrows ate the grain, and so they were killing off the sparrows, and they caused just a, a number of other things happened that caused sort of an environmental and an economic and an industrial chain reaction. And they went through a famine where they estimate 
Somewhere around 30 million people starve to death. A lot of people. They estimate there is at least that many um, miscarried babies as well because of the hunger and the malnutrition. And during that time, some of the people discovered there was clay that they could eat that would give them the sensation of being full, but it had no nutritional value. But it would take away the pain in the stomach. You did it for very long, it would kill you. I heard about some explorers, the early explorers that went across the center of Australia. And they got separated from their supply party. And they gradually starved to death. But while they're starving, there was a desert plant that the aborigines would eat. They didn't know quite how to prepare it. It's called the nardu plant. And they would eat the nardu plant. And they said that the um, strange thing about it is it gave you a very pleasant, satisfying sensation. So even though they had no strength, they could not even stand up, they felt very satisfied. And they starved to death, two out of the three that uh, were left behind. Is it possible that we could be deceived into thinking that we're well-fed when we're really starving? Isaiah asked that question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Why do you eat that which is not good? The White House sponsored a study, and they said if you classify foods from the most useful to the least useful, you'd place vegetables, fruits, milk, and eggs. I don't use the same category. This is their study. In the first category, bread, grain, and cereals in the second, snacks in the third, candy, soft drinks, and beer in the fourth, yet the bulk of advertising in America is for the least useful foods. That part is true. Millions, if not billions of dollars are spent advertising the most least nutritional things. And I understand for one of the first times in history that more people are dying from eating too much as opposed to eating too little. But clearly, they're not eating too much of the good things. I'm preparing a sermon. I'm not going to preach it here. I'm just telling you about it. It's called... Losing our minds. I think the devil is anesthetizing a whole generation of Christians with media, with phones, with texting, social media. We think we're rich and increased with goods, and we don't know that we're poor and wretched and miserable, blind and naked, and we're not feeding on the Word of God. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do we recognize that there's a famine in the land? Now, little story, you've probably heard me share this before, but I was not raised an Adventist. And um, I learned through reading the Bible and then later some Spirit of Prophecy books about Adventists. But I read several Spirit of Prophecy books before I ever went to an Adventist church. And I would dare say and I don't think this is an exaggeration, that I think I was better acquainted with the Adventist beliefs before I was ever baptized than most Adventists are. I know young people that go up, they grow up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and if you ask them to explain Revelation 13, they'd be lost. Or to explain what, what, does, what happened in 1844. 
What's going on in the sanctuary in heaven right now? A lot of them would have no idea. I know because I've done evangelistic programs and revivals at a lot of our schools, and when the kids hear it, they go, wow, I never, never heard that before. Now, this conference, if there's a conference that's an exception, this would be the conference. And I'm just, I'm telling you that sincerely. Um, but as I travel, and it, it's around the world, too, just in the last few months, Karen and I have been to India, Africa, Dubai, Israel, and uh, we're doing more overseas, tra huh? Pennsylvania, don't forget Pennsylvania. It doesn't sound, <laughs> doesn't sound nearly as exotic. <laughs> Africa, India, Middle East, Pennsylvania. <laughs> that was great, we had a great time there, too. But, um, and so I've been in a lot of schools around the world, and I just, I sense that there's a famine in the land. Now, when I first visited my very first Adventist church, uh, it was in Palm Springs, California. I, everyone knows that. I'm not trying to give them a hard time. Um, and I went to a Sabbath school class, and God in his providence arranged that the Sabbath school quarter that week that I showed up was on the 490-year prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, which I had just read about up in the cave. I'd been reading the book by Stephen Haskell. I was a high school dropout, and I could understand that. And so I'm reading this book by Stephen Haskell on uh, Daniel, and I was so excited. I had just finished reading that. You know, God's timing is amazing. You ever read a scripture in the morning and someone needs it later in that day? And so I th the Lord worked that out. And I went to that class, and I found out the teacher said, this is what we're studying today, and I went, <laughs> I was so excited. You know? And I couldn't wait. I was on the edge of my seat. And I'm in a relatively full Sabbath school class. It was an adult class, and I know I stood out because, you know, I just come out of the cave, and I'm wearing overalls and hiking boots and no shirt, just overalls. And uh, Palm Springs are pretty hot. And, um, and so the teacher said, um, so he made some introductory remarks. So when did this time period begin? And I'm looking around, you know. Nobody said anything. No one seemed at all interested. And these are all, they look like professionals. And finally, I, I thought, maybe I misunderstood the question, but I think he asked what the starting period is. And I raised my hand. And he looked at me. I said, 457 B.C. And then several people looked at the hippie that was sitting there. And there was some more discussion. And then he said, no, when did this time period conclude? And they're all kind of looking around. A couple of them looked at me and went, <laughs> you know. I said, 34 A.D. And um, I, I never forgot that day I left that church. I had such high expectations. I had read great controversy and steps to Christ and patriarchs and prophets. I hadn't been to an Adventist church yet. I didn't even know there was an Adventist church. Because are you aware you can read steps to Christ, great controversy, and desire of ages, you don't find the word Seventh-day Adventist. And and I asked my friend that gave me these books, I said, are there people somewhere that believe these things? He said, oh yeah, they're all over the place. So I finally said, wow, there's a, I'd been going to all these denominations. I said, there's a denomination somewhere that believes these things. I thought, wow, I can't wait, because I'd, I'd been looking for the truth. I mean, I worship with Pentecostals and Evangelicals and Baptists, and I studied with everybody. I was just hungry. 
And uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're lost your whole life. Life has no purpose. You discover the Bible and Jesus, all of a sudden the light goes on. You go, wow, this is it. I mean, I'd been through transcendental meditation and Shakti and yoga and Buddhism and it just didn't make any sense. And when I heard the Bible and then I heard the Seventh-day Adventist truth, I said, Eureka. I may not have actually said Eureka, but that was the idea. So this is it. And um, so when I first came to that church, I just thought I was going to see people glowing. I thought I would see people just, you know, scripture was coming out like ticker tape from their mouths and their ears. Just these people had the word. And I was, I was stunned by the biblical ignorance and apathy about the message. I thought, these folks have the truth. Do they not know they have the truth? Do they know what it's like to not know the truth? And, you know, they say that um, absence makes the heart grow fonder, but the opposite is familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes when you grow up with something, you can take it for granted. Somebody collected a list of responses from young people um, when they were given Bible quizzes in their Sunday school class. And I thought some of these were pretty interesting. It sort of indicates what is prevalent in a lot of Christian churches. In answer to who was Noah, it said, um, oh, who, it says Noah was called Joan of Arc because <laughs> he built an ark which animals came in two pairs. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire at night. <laughs> the Jews were a proud people throughout history. Oh, I'm not going to read you that one. Samson slayed the Philistines with the axe of the apostles. <laughs> A-X of E of the apostles. Um... The Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterward, Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. A Christian should only have one wife. This is called holy monotony. The fifth commandment is to humor thy father and mother. Seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. Greatest miracle in the Bible is Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. <laughs> you can tell they got part of the story. <laughs> David was a Hebrew king skilled at playing a liar. He fought with the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption St. John the blacksmith dumped water on his head. That's enough. And someone else said the epistles were the wives of the apostles. And there's a lot of people that uh, really don't have a regular Bible reading program. We need to know our Bibles a lot better than we do today. This movement came into being because a lot of young people caught on fire 
about the Word of God, and they would have all-night Bible studies. You ever had an all-night Bible study? You'd probably think, well, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. I've only done it a couple times, but I just felt the Holy Spirit so close. Some friends and I got together, and we just couldn't stop, and we just studied all night. I remember once we were studying Daniel 9. We're actually the prayer of Daniel 9. And we just kept saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. We felt the Spirit's presence in a way. And when I read Ellen White in early writing, she talks about those nights where they'd study and just say, glory. And uh, you ever had that feeling? Where you love the Word of God so much and it moves you. And you're, hunger, you're hungry for it. But I'm, I'm afraid we're at the time where we think owning a Bible is a substitute for reading one. In the book, Great Controversy, you can read on page 51. Satan well knew that the Holy Scriptures would enable men to discern his deceptions and to withstand his power. It was by the word that even our Savior of the world had resisted his attacks. At every assault, Christ presented the shield of eternal truth, saying, it is written, to every suggestion of the adversary, he opposed him in the wisdom and the power of the word. In order for Satan to maintain his sway over men and establish his authority, he must keep them in ignorance of the scripture. Why? Last thing in the world the devil wants is for you to be holy. The devil's not afraid of the Bible if you don't let the Bible change you through reading it. If you own a Bible and you don't read it, the devil's even happier because you've got enough religion to inoculate you against catching the real thing. Someone once said, it's not how many times you've been through the Bible, but it's how many times the Bible's been through you. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin. What's going to keep you from sin? Thy word I have hidden in my heart. Moody used to say, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Which way is it in your life? Because if you're living in sin and you read the Bible and it convicts you of your sin, you're going to say, hey, something's got to go. I've either got to get rid of my sin or I've got to get rid of the Bible. It's like this man from China that came to the U.S. many years ago and he was able to look through this microscope and he saw petals of a flower and it was so intricate and he just saw the crystal design of it all and he was so amazed he had to own one. Well, he was a successful businessman so he bought a microscope. He took it back and he was showing everybody everything you could see and he was so fascinated with the microscope. One day before dinner, he wanted to take a look at the rice and he took a grain of rice before it was cooked and he put it underneath the microscope. And he was horrified to see that that little grain of rice was just swarming with all kinds of parasites and things. And um, every now and then he'd pull out his food and he'd look at his favorite food underneath the microscope and it just started really bothering him. And he got exasperated one day and he broke, the, smashed the microscope to pieces. Well, it didn't change the truth about his food. He just didn't want to know anymore. And so some people have a hard time reading the Bible because when you do, you're convicted. But maybe that's a good thing. The Word of God does not need to be changed. We do. And the Word of God changes us. It changed me. I hope it's still changing me. We need to read our Bibles. Someone once said the Bible represents B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks 
at his telescope, all he's going to see is a telescope. If you look through the telescope, you see worlds beyond. You can see the heavens. Someone once asked George Washington Carver to what he uh, owed his success. And he said, the Bible. He said, because I decided to commit my ways to the Lord, and I knew that he would direct my paths. And whenever I was stumped by some difficult botanical problem, I would commit it to the Lord, and he would give me the answer. John Bunyan said, read the Bible, read it again. Do not despair of help to understand something of the will of the mind of God as if they are fast locked up from you. Neither trouble yourself as though you may not have commentaries and expositions. Pray and read, read and pray, for a little from God is better than a great deal from man. Sometimes, you ever listen to Pilgrim's Progress? I mean, you can read it. We have it on tape, so we listen to it when we're driving. And um, it, it's especially moving if you know your Bible, because when Bunyan wrote it, he is making references and allusions to the Bible all over the place. He, I'll tell you a book. You, I don't think you can find it in print anymore. You might find it online that I've read, written by. I, I wanted to find out. I like to read the books that the great preachers read that touch them. So I try to find out what they read. And several of the great reformers and some of the great preachers read a book by a pastor that had a very short life, but he was spirit-filled, named Joseph Aline. And he wrote a book called An Alarm to the Unconverted. You might, some of you, you readers, you might want to write that down. It's got a little bit of old English, Alarm to the Unconverted. And uh, he was a Puritan pastor. And I thought Amazing Facts should reprint that book. It's public domain now. But my concern is that so much of what he says is in the language, it's in Biblies. It's the language of the Bible. And unless you know the stories of the Bible, you may not understand it. But he sprinkles allusions to scriptures from all over the Bible in his sentences that are calling you to different stories in the Bible. And he is assuming as he writes that you know the Bible. And what is amazing to me is that he knew his Bible from cover to cover and he didn't have a computer program. We had a young man came to our church, and father, uh, father came up and he said, my, my son has memorized the book of Revelation. I said, really? He said, really? He said, I, you know, we're traveling through, we're visiting, we don't know, would you like him to do a demonstration at some point during Sabbath school or church? So I called him over and I tested him a little bit. I wanted to say, is, is he really, how's he going to do up front if I do this? And I just, I called out a chapter in Revelation. He closed his eyes, he thought for a minute, and he started quoting it verbatim. And I brought him up front, and I allowed him to demonstrate. He had memorized the whole book of Revelation. He said, he's working on the book of Daniel, last I saw him. You know, um, Jay and Andrews knew his Bible so well. Someone asked him one time if he had memorized the whole Bible. He said, no. But if the New Testament was destroyed, I could reproduce it. So how well do you know your Bible? There was, a, uh, there was an evangelist, and um, 
His name was Byron Spears. I don't know if you ever heard Byron Spears preach. Karen and I went to hear him preach when uh, he was in his 70s. He was a converted Episcopalian black pastor. And uh, he got polio when he was a young man. And so he was never able to walk without canes. But um, we went and heard him preach in the Capital City Church 30, 28 years ago, something like that. 70 years old, he would preach 38 sermons, 150 Bible references per sermon, no slides, no notes, no Bible in his hand. And he would tell you where to go, chapter and verse. He'd say, now back up, read this verse. He'd start doing it, King James, always. I'm not, I'm not an advocate for that. I'm just saying that's what he did. And um, it was mind-boggling. They call him the walking Bible. Did anyone here ever hear Pastor Spears preach? Some of you did. He lived to 100. At 99, he was in a nursing home. And he was giving Bible studies to the people in the nursing home. And they were flabbergasted that he still appeared to remember the Bible. And he said the only reason he remembered it so well is he spent so long sharing it that it was just absolutely, in, it was like with a jackhammer engraved in his mind. But don't tell me you can't remember the Bible or you can't learn the Bible. At his funeral, he asked me if I'd do his funeral, which kind of surprised me because um, he said he spent all his time watching Amazing Facts once he retired. And um, they eventually kicked him out of one of the churches that he attended. He was just an old conservative Seventh-day Adventist evangelist, and when he saw changes coming in, he would speak up and he'd quote the Bible. They said he was becoming a nuisance. So he, he would watch from home. And uh, at his sermon, we heard some just incredible testimonies. Even his kids. They said they never met, saw anything like it. He'd just go scripture after scripture after scripture. He'd never pick up a Bible. I mean, he would read his Bible at home, but during his public meetings, he was doing a meeting in Canada. I'm just sharing this from memory as well as I can, sitting at the funeral service listening. And a Church of Christ preacher called him out and said he was teaching heresy, and he challenged him to a debate. Now, normally, he didn't go looking for debates, but he wanted to debate the law on the Sabbath with Byron Spears. And Spears said, let the brother know that uh, I'll be happy to meet him if it's fairly organized. And he said, um, matter of fact, um, if it's okay with him, we'll put it on TV. And um, they advertised it and everybody came together and uh, through the whole debate, Spears, he just stood with his two canes in each hand, let the one with her talk. And he was always respectful, he said, I respectfully disagree. And um, he would then give all scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture on the law and the covenants and the Sabbath. And a commentator, a newspaper guy who showed up because thousands of people came to watch this event, um, he wrote afterward and he said, I think I just saw an amateur getting beaten up by a professional. <laughs> but he just knew the Bible so well. You know, I asked the family, I said, would you be willing to let Amazing Facts have his cassette tapes 
because we'd like to convert them to MP3s and put them on our website so our evangelists can hear what an old evangelist sounded like. Because you live to 100. He remembered doing evangelism back in the 30s. And so they did. The family sent us all of his tapes, and they allowed us to make them available for free. And so if you want to hear something amazing, unfortunately, it's not video. I think we recorded, we brought him into the Central Church when he was 92. We had to carry him onto the platform because um, he, he couldn't walk very well by then. He preached for 90 minutes on the Holy Spirit. It's online at YouTube. Never opened his Bible. Scripture after scripture after scripture. And then you ask a Seventh-day Adventist, can you quote the Ten Commandments? Should we be able to? I went to a Catholic school and they made me remember the Beatitudes. Should we know our Bibles? But if I was to ask you about the latest programs or who won American Idol, a lot of church members would have all the details on those things. So how long do we halt between two opinions? Could it be that there's a famine in the land? You know what deceives us? Comparatively, Seventh-day Adventists are better educated than most Christians. I did an evangelistic meeting in one town and um, several people, small town, everybody knew each other, several people from one of the local Presbyterian churches came to our meetings and some took a stand for the Seventh-day Adventist message. And the pastor was very upset. He said, Brother Doug, you're sheep stealing. I said, Brother, I don't, I don't agree with that. I said, if they were your sheep, I'd be stealing. But they're not your sheep, they're his sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And the sheep go where the grass is. And he said, well, how would you like it if I started studying with your members? I said, help yourself. <laughs> now, this is the truth. A few weeks, I ran into him at the post office. And I said, I heard you were studying with so-and-so. He said, yeah. I said, well, how's that going? <laughs> he said, not very well. She knows her Bible too good. <laughs> That's what he said. So we're deceived because we do know our Bibles comparatively well because there's sort of a general apathy among Christians in North America. What happens? I heard a pastor explain it this way one time is, let's say this is where the church is in their knowledge of scripture and this is where society is in their knowledge of scripture. You know, even society has some knowledge of scripture. And as the standards of the world go down, the church always tries to just be a little better than the world. But over time what happens is as the standards of the world go down and the church just kind of hovers above that, you can have a situation where eventually the standards of the church are lower than the standards of the world. And I suspect that today, the average Christian knows less of the Bible than a deist did during the revolution. I know because I'm, I'm reading a book right now. Karen and I were driving along. We're reading a book about John Adams. And those people back then, they knew their Bibles. Now, the reason I'm making a big stink about this is because I think we're living in those days of Elijah. 
I think that we need a revival. I think that there, uh, I think there's a famine for the word of God right now and that often precipitates when people's hearts are divided, it precipitates other kinds of times of trouble. It could be economic or natural disasters, I don't know. Someone asked me, what's it gonna to take to bring revival to the church? I said, trouble. All that live godly will suffer persecution. And the reason I think we're not seeing very much persecution right now is because there's not very much godly living. And so he said, there will be neither dew nor rain except at my word. And then God said, you know, you need to take cover. The word of the Lord came to him. You notice the word of the Lord goes to Elijah and the word of the Lord comes from Elijah. The word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here and go eastward and hide by the brook Cherith. And that word Cherith means cutting because there on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley in the hills was kind of a deep cut canyon. And it came down from the area where the Ammonites were and it eventually met up with the Jordan. But much of the year, you wouldn't see any water coming out of the canyon because it dried up before it ever reached the Jordan River. But higher up in the canyon, there'd be water. And God told Elijah, this is a very remote, desolate place. Few people go there because it's such a rugged country. And um, I'll provide for you there. Now, I can relate to this in a very personal way because I lived in a desert canyon. And even in the summertime, uh, there'd be no water coming out of Tockwitz Creek where it went down to Palm Springs. You'd have to hike up a ways, and eventually you could get to where any water that was in the hills would come and hit smooth rock, and it was forced to the surface. You know what I mean? So you'd find places in the canyon where there were pools of clear water that you could drink from, even in the summertime. And um, nobody ventured anywhere near there because it was so hot getting to it and around it. And so God directed him to a place like this where trees were there. You notice in our scripture reading, it talks about a man who obeys the Lord is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. It doesn't matter how desert, deserted or hot it might be around it, it flourishes. So in the canyon where I lived, in the deserts around me, it was all dry and dead, but just right down in the canyon, it was all lush and green. Karen's been there. She knows what I'm talking about. And most people would never find it. God directed him to a spot like this. And he said, uh, I've spoken to the birds. You'll drink from the brook. And I've commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went according to the word of the Lord. And he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Can you say amen? So, things are looking pretty desperate outside. He said time would go by. A year passes and there is no rain, and the earth is parched as if with fire. I'm reading from Prophets and Kings, page 124. The scorching heat of the sun destroys what little vegetation has survived. Streams dry up. The lowing herds and the bleeding flocks wander hither and thither in distress. Once flourishing fields have become like burning desert sands and desolate waste. 
The groves dedicated to the idol worship are leafless. The forest trees are gaunt skeletons of nature. They afford no shade. The air is dry and suffocating. Dust storms blind the eyes and nearly stop the breath. Once prosperous cities and villages have become places of, mourn, of mourning. Hunger and thirst are telling upon man and beast with fearful mortality. Famine with all of its horror has come closer and closer. All around is dying and desolation, and yet Elijah is fed. Do we need to worry about God feeding us when that time comes? Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. You can read in Isaiah 33, 16, He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him and his water will be sure. Can God feed his people and give them bread and water in a desert? So God provided for Elijah during this time. Will he provide for us? If there is a famine for the word of God in the land, do you need to have a famine in your heart in your home? You can't just shrug and say, yeah, these are the days of Laodicea, so I just need to be lukewarm. There's no excuse for it. While that day is going to come upon most of the world as a thief, Paul says that day should not come upon you as a thief. You are children of the day, and you are not a children of the night. And while the world may be starving, God feeds his own. David said, I was young, and I am now old, and I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. You and I should be feeding on the word of God. The way that Noah survived the storm was he stored away food for the coming flood. You and I now need to be fortifying our mind with the truth of God's word so we can stand through that final conflict. How did Jesus meet with every temptation? It is written, it is written, it is written. All three times he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. I think if Jesus wanted to, he quote, could have quoted from memory from any book in the Old Testament. I think Jesus spent a lot of time. And how did Jesus know the Bible? Did God give him some supernatural revelation? Or did he learn it as a child? And did he learn it at his mother's knee like every other child? He just made it his priority. So God is feeding. Why didn't God tell Elijah to go gather up manna? Why did he say, I'm going to use the ravens to feed you? You know, a little later, Jesus said, uh, Luke 12, 24, consider the ravens. You know, one place he says, consider the birds, but he specifically says ravens. In Luke 12, 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, neither have they storehouses or barns, and God feeds them. Of how much value are you than the birds? It's interesting that God would choose ravens. You know, they're one of the smartest birds. They're in the corvid family. They live a long time. Their intelligence is measured right up there with the intelligence of dogs and dolphins. They're very intelligent. They use tools. They'll go find a twig or a stick, and they'll bend it and adjust it, and they'll use it to, to pry a grub out of a wormhole. And then they save it, and they've got their favorite tools. They put things in bottles before, and they, a crow can figure out how to get something out of a bottle using a stick, using leverage. They're very, very clever birds. And um, they survive in almost any environment. It's amazing how they do. In our little town, Sacramento, I drive to the radio program once a week, and I go through this town Sunday afternoon. It's always desolate, and these ravens are always on the street. And when I go around the corner, 
they just hop over the yellow line. They don't try to get out of the way. They know he's not going to come over this line here. And I think, boy, those are fearless birds. If it was a sparrow, they would flit off. The crow's very smart. So I used to wonder about uh, the crows. Let me tell you an interesting story. It's an amazing fact. 1999, a kitten appeared in the yard of an elderly Massachusetts couple, and it was so small that Wallace and Ann Calito at first thought it was a rat. The Kalitas believed that someone had thrown the little black and white kitten over the fence into their mobile home park, and they worried about its welfare until they noticed the cat had an unlikely caretaker, an American crow. The Kalitas watched in amazement as the crow took the kitten, who they named Cassie, under its wing, pardon the pun, and began feeding it worms and insects. They couldn't believe their eyes as they watched the crow that they dubbed Moses feeding Cassie, protecting her from other animals, calling to keep her out of the street. They knew no one would believe their remarkable tale unless they had proof, so they began filming and photographing the playful kitten and with his watchful wing guardian. Eventually, the Kalitos were able to coax Cassie indoors with cat food. She spent the evenings enjoying the luxuries of an indoor cat life, but every morning at 6 a.m., Moses, the crow, would peek in at the screen door looking for his friend, and they'd let Cassie come out and play with the crow. Now, they say that it could be when the cat was little, having some black fur, every now and then one animal will adopt another, getting confused, you know, and maybe the crow thought it was an ugly little raven that needed help. Well, that got me to thinking about Elijah. First of all, I was thinking, where were the crows getting the bread? Now, they will fly a long way, and they fly a straight line. That's why you hear the expression, as a crow flies. I think you read on in the story, you'll find one of the only places in the kingdom you're going to find bread is in the palace of Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> so my mind continued to work, and I picture Ahab and Jezebel sitting down in the morning for breakfast, and they don't have screens on their windows back then. They haven't invented them yet. And a crow lands on the window, hops in, snatches food and bread off their table, a couple of crows. And just before they, they grab the food, they say, where's Elijah? Where's Elijah? And they fly off. Because <laughs> they can learn to speak. Did you know that? Some, some crows, yeah, they can actually learn to talk. Now, the Bible says Elijah was a hairy man. And... Uh, it could mean that he had a hairy garment and a leather belt, and I don't think it means he had necessarily hair like Esau, but in my mind, I picture that he's got, you know, a black hairy garment and uh, maybe dark hair, and some crows thought he was just a fat chick. <laughs> and they were, they were bringing him, I meant, you know, bird chick, sorry. <laughs> I just... And... Uh, and they're bringing him, they're bringing him food. Every day, twice a day, they're feeding him with the provisions of heaven. Can God feed his people in a famine? Can he feed us in the wilderness? Did he feed Jesus? When he was, uh, after 40 days of fasting, it says, and angels came and ministered to him. How do you think they ministered to him? Does the Bible say God is going to feed his people? 
during 1,260 years when the woman flees into the wilderness. God provides for her there, doesn't he? I don't think the Lord will provide for us. But do we need to cooperate? Every day the Lord would rain bread down from heaven, six days a week, I should say, and the children of Israel would go out of the camp and they must gather it, they would knead it, they would roll it and put it into pans and they would bake it, and then they would eat it and masticate it and swallow it and assimilate it, and you've got to participate. Do you know how much it's cost people to you, for you and I to have whole Bibles at our disposal? to read, the freedom to read the Word of God. When Karen and I went to Russia in 1992, um, among the many things we brought, we, it was a miracle because uh, the Iron Curtain had just fallen. Bob Spangler asked if we'd go do a meeting in a town where they hadn't had a Seventh-day Adventist meeting in 70 years. No public evangelism. We went to Stavropol. And uh, the people had not been allowed to have Bibles. We brought, I don't know, we had like 15 cases of extra baggage. Miracle number one is that we were able to get these airlines to put that on the plane without charging us. That, see, that's the biggest miracle of the night, isn't it? And um, they argued with us at uh, Lufthansa for quite a while. We told them what it was for. And we, you know, if anything, evangelists have the gift of persuasion. And so we, you know, we begged and pleaded and said it was humanitarian and, and eventually the guy discussed it. He said, okay, and he put container after container on the plane. Most of it was Bibles we brought into the country. Now, when I do an evangelistic meeting in North America, my custom back then was people come in opening night, we'd give them a Bible, we'd give them a lesson, we'd tell them when you come 10 nights, you get to keep the Bible. And so we thought, well, we'll do the same thing in Russia. These people had not been allowed to have their own Bible in 70 years. And so during the program, I hadn't consulted the pastor. We had all the Bibles stacked up, and they looked at them. All the pastors were looking at the Bibles like we had just brought Fort Knox into the church. And, um, and you should have seen the look on their faces. And during my opening announcements, through my translator, I said, now we're going to give each of you a Bible tonight to take home with lesson number one. And, and when I said that, it's the beginning of my meeting. They all looked at each other. They got up. They walked out of my meeting. I hadn't preached my sermon yet. And they went into the lobby and they stood in line so they would be in line to get a Bible. They were so used to standing in lines back then from shortages, as soon as they knew there might be a line, that's all they wanted was the Bible. I haven't even preached my sermon. So I said to the pastor, what do we do? He said, oh, I don't know. He says, you give them these Bibles and won't come back. He says, these Bibles, you know how much they're worth? He says, I'll go sell them on the black market. I said, well, someone who buys it will read it, won't they? And so we, we had quite a discussion right here at the beginning. That we had this meeting with translators right there on the platform as everybody kind of walked out of the meeting. And we said, I said, give out the Bibles. They'll come back in. Give out the Bibles. And finally they said, all right, you know, the stubborn Americans. So they gave out the Bibles, and I think just about everybody came back in. And uh, Karen and I were walking around later during those meetings, and we'd see people in the park that had Bibles that they got from our meetings, and they were stroking them, like in disbelief, like it was a love letter from God. And I'd never seen anything like that. 
This is how it is now in China when you get Bibles over there. Is that when people, it's still difficult in many places for them to get their own Bible. And here we've got so many Bibles. Why is it such an important book? It's because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the, house, from the mouth of God. Amen? The scriptures is what it's all about. And we need to acquaint ourselves with him and be at peace. George Mueller said, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. Did you catch that? I agree. The vigor of our spiritual life will be in proportion to the place held by the Bible in our thought and in our lives. Luther said he studied the Bible like he gathered apples. First he shook the whole tree, then he shook the branches, then he shook the limbs, and then he looked behind every leaf. Mahatma Gandhi said, the reading of the New Testament has given me comfort and boundless joy. You can read, um, Abraham Lincoln said, take this book as far as you can upon reason, take the balance upon faith. You'll live and die a better man. Lincoln also said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God ever gave to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. I don't think we appreciate what a gift we have, and especially as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. You know, years ago I heard some tourists were going through Yellowstone Park, and everybody that goes in there, you'll see signs that says, please do not feed the bears. Um, and yet the bears come up to the cars and people are taking pictures and some folks inevitably will say, oh, the cute bear looks like a teddy bear, you know? And they'll see little baby bears and so they'll open the window just a little crack and they'll toss out some donuts and things and so they can get a good picture, you know? They kind of tease the bears to stay. Park rangers, there's not enough to watch everything the tourists do all the time. And one of the, one of the people who were going through the park, they came up to a ranger and said, you got these signs everywhere that says, please do not feed the bears. And he says, but you know, I still see tourists feeding the bears. He said, yeah, it's really sad. He says, it's really dangerous. But he said, more than anything, it's sad. And he said, because what happens is those bears get so used to being fed junk food by the tourists that they don't really learn to feed themselves. And when winter comes, we have to go around with a backhoe and pick up their bodies because they've frozen and starved. There is a famine coming. There is a storm coming. Jesus said, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. He is building on the rock. At least the fool hears them and he doesn't do them. What would be even more foolish if someone had them and he doesn't even hear them? How is he going to survive the storm? How is she going to survive the storm? We're going to be challenged on why we believe what we believe. Peter said we need to be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. We need to be ready to tell someone why we believe what we believe. Now, how can that change? Do you know the quickest way to remember the Bible is to give it away? I, I don't remember the scriptures unless I read them and then share them with someone else. In giving Bible studies, in doing evangelism, 
you remember your brain stores things in a different place when you actually, when you read it, that's one place. But then when you have to recall it to give to someone else, it locks it in at another place that is a lot closer to the surface. And you'll find in sharing your faith with others, you may be saving yourself. Because as you give it away, you get to keep it. So, my appeal to you tonight would be, friends, there's a famine coming. There may be a famine here now. For the word of God, I think there's some very difficult times ahead. In the country, in the church, in the world, we're going to get hit broadside with a storm. And I'm not just saying that to try to sound like I'm crying that the sky is falling. I'm saying it because the Bible says it. And we're going to need a faith that is rooted on the word of God. Everything that could be shaken will be shaken. And unless you know where you stand with Jesus based on his word, you're on shifting sand. How much time do you spend with the Lord? How much time do you spend in his word? Do you have regular times every day where you get up and you read the word? And if you're not doing anything now, don't start by trying to read through the whole Bible in a month. Start doing something religiously. Nothing wrong with being religious about this. Say, I'm going to read this many verses. I'm going to read a chapter. I'm going to do something. And you might say, oh, I'm not getting anything out of it. Do it anyway. Do it, and you eventually will. You might be surprised what you're getting, and you don't know what you're getting. Get Bible tapes. Play them in your car. I do everything I know how to do to try to keep it in my head. I, I have it on my phone. I have it in the car. I listen to sermons on the radio. Um, I try to share it with people. I have to study to reach it. I'm just like you. And yet I struggle um, to keep focused on God because there are so many things to distract us. We, we need to spend some time in the Word, friends. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What does he mean by saying, eat my flesh? When he gave them bread, it is death. We need to take Christ into us through his word. He is the bread that came down from heaven. Would you like Jesus in you? We all say that. How do you think it happens? If his word abides in you, then Christ abides in you. So friends, I'd like to encourage you and appeal to you that we really have a revival. You want to see a revival at the camp meeting? Get on your knees when you go back to your room or your cabin or wherever you're at, your tent. Wonder what would happen if everybody tonight said, I'm going to go open the word of God and read until I get something. When do you stop eating? When you're full. When do you stop reading? When you feel like you got something. Get on your knees and say, Lord, speak to me through your word. He's the author. He will. What would happen if everybody did that? What would, would it change the spiritual level? Would all of us be a little closer to God at the next meeting? If you come to camp meeting and you leave and you don't increase your spiritual input, I know many of you do this, I'm speaking to those of you that you kind of like the church, you like the camp meeting, you like the religion, and, but you're not really in the Word. Open His Word. See if He doesn't keep His promise and speak to your heart. 
The promise is if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Jesus said, you will search me, Jeremiah 29, 13. You will search for me and you will find me. Can you say amen? amen? When you search for me with all of your heart. Father in heaven, you promised if we seek, we will find, Lord. If we knock, you'll open. If we ask, we'll receive. We believe that in many respects there is a famine for your word in the country, in the world, among your people, in Christians in general. But there's no reason that we need to have a famine. You can feed us with bread from heaven like you did Elijah and water from the brook. Lord, I pray that you will just inspire each of us with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we'll realize how crucial it is to our spiritual health and survival that we spend time in your word. I pray, Lord, you'll just pour out your spirit on this camp meeting, be with every person, family, division, and I pray that we can have Christ in us. The hope of glory is our prayer in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.